From historical locations found on a map to the lesser known areas found maybe even in your own hometown, history leaves shadows that people in the present can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Hello everyone and welcome to the first inaugural episode of Historically Haunted. That's right, I changed my name. For those of you who are on my Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, thank you guys so much for commenting and helping me pick out the new name for my show. I also got a fancy new logo to go with it. I hope you guys like it. I had a lot of fun working with the artist and coming up with the idea for it. It reminds me of like the Munsters. I've always been more of a Munsters fan than an Adams Family fan. Because of the new name change, my website has also changed. So instead of the old um, URL, it is now historicallyhaunted.net is how you can get on there. It's basically the same. I just changed up the name and switched some pictures around and stuff so far. But um, if you still like my handles on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, those should not have changed. But if somebody wants to add me on any of those, it's now historically haunted on Facebook and Twitter, and then on Instagram, it's historically underscore haunted. I hope that everyone is doing okay during this craziness of the coronavirus. It's hard for me to say that because I know a lot of people have been so affected by their either jobs or even sadly people getting sick and death, and I just hope that everyone is okay, and I will always be here to bring you more historical content to hopefully get your mind off of it, which is why I'm not really bringing it up. Um, I just wanted to say you are all in my thoughts and I am so sorry that this is happening, but I hope we can all get through this together. So starting today, obviously, uh, my episodes are going to sound really different, but I hope you like them. And I ended up, because of the whole lockdown situation, I finally had time to do things like find an artist to make a logo and change the name and I've been wanting to do those things for a long time but I finally had the time to do it. Uh, took a long few weeks but I got it all done. So without further ado, welcome to Historically Haunted and I hope you guys enjoy. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. The New Jersey Devil, also known as the Leeds Devil, is one of the most famous cryptids to be found within the Pine Barrens. This creature is described as a kangaroo-like creature with the head of a goat or horse, horns on its head, and huge bat-like leathery wings. It has cloven hooves and a forked tail. It's known to be seen flying over the Pine Barrens with a high-pitched, blood-curdling scream. The origin of this story is just as strange as the description of this creature. The popular legend of the Jersey Devil goes like this. In 1735, a woman named Jane Leeds, also known as Mother Leeds in the story, was an extremely poor woman living in the Pine Barrens who had 12 children and a drunkard for a husband who was not doing much to help provide for the family. 
Upon learning of her 13th pregnancy, she cursed the child out of anger and frustration, yelling towards the sky, Let this one be a devil! When Mother Leeds went into labor months later, a storm began to brew, and it became violent, and she and her midwives began to work on delivering the baby. Her husband and 12 children were in one room, and she and the midwives were in another. When the baby was born, it looked like a normal baby, but minutes later, the evil wish Mother Leeds had made came true. The baby began to shapeshift before their very eyes. The baby began to grow at an unnatural speed. It grew horns on the top of his head, claw-like talons tore through his fingers, and it grew large bat-like wings. Hair and feathers sprouted from the growing body, and the eyes bulged, turning bright red as the head morphed into a hideous, snarling face. After the change was over, the monster attacked its own mother, killing her, and then turned its attack on the midwives, tearing them limb from limb. It then burst into the other room, killing as many as it could, before it finally flew up the chimney, destroying it on the way out. Now it hides in the Pine Barren, stalking livestock and campers. You can still, to this day, see it flying above the trees, screaming its horrifying scream. Now that is one epic story, but is there any truth to it? Well, it turns out that the Leeds family is one of New Jersey's earliest settlers. Many of the Leeds family descendants can still be found living in New Jersey today. Proof of whether or not they had a devil child in their family roots cannot be found. But the one thing that still is constant is the sightings of the New Jersey devil. Some from farmers claiming that the animal attacked their livestock to sideshow circus hoaxes claiming that they had captured the Jersey Devil. But maybe one account you were not expecting was from Napoleon Bonaparte's brother, Joseph Bonaparte. Joseph Bonaparte was the king of Spain for a time until he lost a war against England. He fled Spain for the United States. Eventually, he ended up in Broadtown, New Jersey. He built a large mansion like the estates found in France at the time. It was the winter of 1813, and he was alone at his mansion. One day, he went out hunting on his estate. While in the woods, he discovered strange tracks in the snow that looked like hooves, but the weird part was that they were only two feet, like the animal was bipedal. He turned around and saw a large creature with a horse's head and bat-like wings. He claimed that it screeched at him and flew over his head into the woods. He told everyone he met that this story was true, and he swore that he saw the Jersey Devil. Another notable sighting of the Jersey Devil happened in 1909 when a Navy commander named Stephen Dechter and his men were running a drill at the Hanover Mill Works, which is located in New Jersey and in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. They were practicing shooting cannons when the men claimed that they saw the Jersey Devil flying in the distance. The men even said that they shot a cannonball at it, and according to them, the cannonball just bounced off of the Jersey Devil and it continued to fly away. The news that the Navy had sighted the Jersey Devil spread very quickly throughout the towns and the surrounding states, and it caused a mass panic. They had over a thousand people calling the police reporting sightings of the Jersey Devil. Schools were canceled and the surrounding towns were 
were shut down. Men were traveling around armed with shotguns searching for it. The Philadelphia Zoo even offered a $10,000 reward to find it. The newspapers, of course, had a field day with this story, and the mass panic lasted from January 16th to January 23rd. Another notable incident during the Jersey Devil panic happened at Hardin Heights, where witnesses reported the Jersey Devil itself landed on top of their trolley car, shook it, and broke out some windows. The panic died down, and there are still claims to this day that the Jersey Devil has been spotted. So, next time you are in the Pine Barrens, keep your eyes to the sky because you might just be lucky enough to see the Jersey Devil, and you would be added to the list of people who have had a monstrous moment. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more. Over our history, humans have used several techniques to try to contact the dead. Today, ghost hunters use various technologies to try to record proof of the paranormal. I got curious as to what is inside these paranormal toolkits, so come with me as I open it up and see what's inside. Today on Paranormal Toolkit, we will be discussing EVPs. EVPs stand for Electric Voice Phenomenon. An EVP occurs when voices that are not present at the time of recording can later be heard when the audio tape is played back. Sometimes the voices respond directly to questions investigators have asked during their investigations. Most EVPs are short, one-word answers, and sometimes an EVP can even be a grunt or a moan. The idea of contacting spirits became very popular between the 1840s and the 1920s with the spiritualism movement. In 1959, a Swedish man named Frederick Jurgensen was recording birds singing in a forest. When he played back the recording later, he heard his mother's voice saying, Frederick, you're being watched. Fredel, my little Fredel, can you hear me? He went on to record many other voices from the other side over the next four years, and he also published two books. As word got out about his research, using recorders to possibly contact the dead, technology was getting better. It was in the 1960s and 70s that the idea of recording spirits from the other side was widely thought to be possible. In the 1970s, paranormal research teams started using them regularly. As the recordings got smaller and easier to use, the sound quality also got better and better. Now recorders can even be played back in real time. You can also replay the recorder after asking the questions. So instead of before when you would record and have to go play it back later that night, you can now record and then listen to the answers on the spot. This greatly helps investigators communicate with the person on the other side. Most ghost hunters care about the dead and they want to help tell their stories. And while skeptics will say that this is all in our heads and we just are hearing what we want to hear, just remember that Thomas Edison himself thought this was a possibility. He once was quoted in an article saying, If our personality survives, then it would be strictly logical to assume that it retains memory, intellect, and other faculties and knowledge that we acquire on Earth. I am inclined to believe that our personality hereafter will be able to affect matter. If this reasoning be correct, then if... 
We can evolve an instrument so delicate as to be affected, moved, or manipulated by our personality as it survives in the next life, such as an instrument, when made available, ought to record something. End quote. While an EVP is not quite the proof we need to show the skeptics that ghosts do in fact exist, I think it is a great step in the right direction. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that 1 in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the Information About Dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show. Today, Asbury Park, New Jersey is a beautiful coastal community that is going through a rebirthing period. It has had its ups and downs. It is also on the radar for many paranormal happenings. From the town once being a main tourist destination to being famous for a shipwreck that turned into a tourist attraction for the morbid curious, these historical events seem to have trapped many lingering spirits on the beach and surrounding buildings. Let's learn the true and tragic history of the events that took place at Asbury Park and find out why this place is historically haunted. Asbury Park is a city found in Monmouth County, New Jersey. It is located on the Jersey Shore and is considered part of the New York City metropolitan area. Intended to be just a vacation resort, it was founded by a New York City broom manufacturer named James A. Bradley. Bradley had converted to Methodism and became really involved in the Methodist Church. He went to a Methodist summer camp in Ocean Grove. Ocean Grove is to the south of Asbury Park. While he was at the summer camp, he decided he wanted to make a town that was similar to Ocean Grove so that people could find some religious comfort while living in a beautiful beachside town. In 1871, he purchased 500 acres of beachfront property for $90,000. He decided to name it Asbury Park after Francis Asbury, who was the first bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States. The resort was considered a dry town at first, meaning no alcohol was allowed. Bradley had wanted a progressive town from the very beginning. He had a boardwalk with attached pavilions built, public changing rooms were added, and a pier at the southern side of the boardwalk was built. He also installed an electric trolley system and electric lights throughout. There were three-lane streets, parks, and churches. He also built an oceanfront and business district, the town turned into a thriving city after this. Once built to try to be a little more church-like, the city grew to be a place to play more than to worship. The hotel industry moved in, including the Plaza Hotel, and the tourism boomed. More than 600,000 people visited annually. People came via railway from New York and Long Beach railroads to enjoy the boardwalk. 
George C. Tillou, famous for designing of Coney Island, opened a steeplechase amusements on Ocean Avenue. Later, that location became known as Palace of Amusements. It was an indoor amusement park large enough to have a Ferris wheel sticking out of the roof. In 1888, Ernest Schnitzler built the Palace Merry-Go-Round. Sadly, this 100-year-old structure was deemed unsafe and was torn down in 2004, even though it was on the National Registry of Historic Places. But some local historical organizations were able to save several pieces of art and ride parts from the building, including the famous Tilly Mural, that was used as a logo to promote the boardwalk as a tourist destination. By the 1920s, the now city was going strong. It had beautiful old Victorian homes dotting the landscape, and the city decided to construct a new Paramount Theater and Convention Hall complex. The city hired Warren and Whitmore, a renowned American architectural firm, to design the complex. They were famous for designing New York's Grand Central Terminal. The Convention Hall was a 3,600-seat indoor exhibition center located on the boardwalk and the beach. Construction took two years, starting in 1928 and ending in 1930. The hall was used for concerts, sporting events, and exhibition shows. The Paramount Theater was built near the convention hall, and the two were connected by a grand arcade. The arcade was a covered walkway full with high-end shops and restaurants. Heat was provided in the colder months by using underground pipes from the city's own steam plant, a modern marvel at the time. Today, the entire complex is on the Registry of Historic Places. Around this time, additional structures were also built to gain more tourism to the area. For example, a carousel house and a casino area was constructed along the shoreline. Jazz and big band clubs sprung up on Springwoods Avenue and were frequented by Billie Holiday, Lionel Hampton, and many other jazz greats. In 1927, the radio station WDWM moved from Newark to downtown Asbury. They changed their call letters to WCAP, which stood for Wonder City Asbury Park. Shortly after the move, the Chamber of Commerce decided to have the station move into the second floor promenade of the convention hall. Because of this move, the radio station had a front row seat to one of the biggest maritime disasters since the Titanic. The SS Morrow Castle is a maritime disaster with many unlucky and strange events that has left the tragedy unsolved to this day. The SS Morrow Castle was a luxury ocean liner. Her maiden voyage was on August 23, 1930. She lived up to her expectations of being a fast ship as she completed voyages faster than other ships. Even during the Great Depression, it was able to maintain a steady business because once they got out into open sea, they were able to sell cheap alcohol and during the time of Prohibition, this was a popular choice. Her final voyage started out as a normal trip, leaving port from Havana, heading for New York City on September 5th, 1934. In the late afternoon on September 6th, the ship began to run into harsh weather with increasing clouds and high winds. By the 7th, the ship was moving parallel along the southeastern coast of the United States. The storm was raging with heavy rain, winds, and big waves, causing most passengers to turn in early that evening. Going on at the same time of this big storm, the captain of the ship was eating his dinner when he complained of a stomach pain and suddenly died of an apparent heart attack. This left the command of the ship to Chief Officer William Worms. Shortly after nightfall, the winds picked up to 30 miles per hour. Around 2.50 a.m. on September 8, 1934, the ship was now sailing eight nautical miles off the coast of Long Beach Island when a fire was detected coming from a storage locker within the first-class writing room on Deck B, 
30 minutes after the first report of the fire, the whole ship was engulfed in flames. As the fire grew to an unstoppable blaze, the new Captain Worms tried to beach the ship, but the fire was spreading so fast that he decided to switch tactics and launch the lifeboats and abandon the ship, leaving the steering room empty. Within 20 minutes of discovering the fire, the fire burned through the ship's main electrical cables and took out all power to the ship, plunging it into darkness. Because of the power outage, it also stopped the radio from working, and the crew was only able to send out one single SOS call. The ship was now an out-of-control blaze that was drifting toward the shore. It became jump or die for many people on board, but the lack of proper instructions for passengers as to how to put on a life vest proved fatal as many people did jump, broke their necks on impact due to improper use of the life vest. The passengers also did not know where to go for proper use of the lifeboats. Many people panicked and ran straight to the back of the ship and had to jump into the cold water below. Only six of the 12 lifeboats made it to launch and each boat was meant to hold 408 people, but only 85 people per boat got on. Many of the people in the boats were crew members. Another example of the lack of procedure that was overlooked when they brought the passengers on board the ship. Due to the fact that only one SOS call was sent out, the rescue boats were slow to send help. A few other ocean liners did show up, but they were too late to help many on board by this time, which honestly, that doesn't make any sense. You think only one SOS? You'd want to go faster to see what made them stop sending the SOS? I don't know. That just blows my mind that they were slow to it just because of one SOS. You'd think that would pick up the pace more than a million SOSs. A few ocean liners did end up showing up, but they were too late to help many on board by this time. They sent small boats to help find those in the water, but with the seas being so rough, they had a hard time saving many. The Coast Guard got grilled for their lack of effort. They did send a ship, but it kept its distance almost as if they just watched it happen and they did not act until the morning when the radio reports said that dead bodies were washing up on the beaches from Point Pleasant all the way down to Spring Lake. While other ships were out trying to rescue people, the ship began to drift straight for shore. At about 7.30, the WCAP radio announcer Tom Burley was doing his normal news broadcast from the second floor of the convention hall. With the sun just starting to come up, he began to see something off the shore and he watched as a ship engulfed in flames emerged on the horizon. Not really believing what he was seeing, he called the local law enforcement who said they already knew and yes, it was the ship SS Morro Castle that had caught fire out at sea. He began his dramatic broadcast describing what he was seeing and the news quickly spread. Everyone in the town rushed down to the beach to watch the burning ship drift toward the convention hall. In his broadcast, Burley said, She's here! The Morro Castle is coming right towards the studio! The ship came to a stop on a sandbar, still smoldering. Strangely enough, the exact spot where the Morro Castle stopped was the same spot of another ship disaster. In this spot, on November 13, 1854, a ship named New Era wrecked and lost 150 lives. And that is a really strange coincidence. It took five more days for the fire to be put out, and what was left of the bodies on the ship were moved to the Paramount Theater, turning it and other buildings around the area into makeshift morgues. In the end, 137 people lost their lives. This disaster made worldwide headlines, and the ship now beached next to the convention center became a tourist attraction and a place for sightseeing trips for the morbid curious. People flocked from all over the United States to get a chance to look at this ship. The water was shallow enough for people to wade out 
and place a hand on it. The shops had postcards made and pressed penny machine was also put in place for people to buy to remember their time of seeing the burned ship. This all stopped when it was towed away for scraps on March 14, 1935. Still to this day, no one knows who or what started the fire, and many theories have been made about the doomed ship. When the Garden State Parkway opened in 1947, Asbury Park saw a decline in tourism. Fewer people took the train, and the new highway offered new off-ramps with easier access to new places to vacation. By the 1960s, new malls 10 miles away made the town less of a convenient place to do shopping. They had a dip in tourism as well as being a shopping destination. By the 1970s, racial inequality became an issue in the area. The west side district of Asbury Park was predominantly black, and by the 1970s, 30% of the population was African American. At first, the amusements, restaurants, and shops employed many of the African American community. But over time, the business owners began to hire only white staff. This, in turn, created an unemployment crisis, especially with local African-American youth, adding to this that there were poor housing conditions and little recreational opportunities. This combination made lots of people really angry, and the anger spilled over into a seven-day riot. Known today as the Asbury Park Race Riot that began on July 4, 1970, a group of African-American youth left the Westside Community Center and began to do minor damage. But this soon gained a crowd and it turned into a mob that started looting and throwing firebombs. When it was over on July 10th, the whole Westside neighborhood and shopping districts were destroyed. 180 plus people and 15 New Jersey state troopers were injured and 46 people were admitted with shotgun wounds. The governor had to bring in the National Guard to finally get it to stop. The damage was estimated at $5,600,000. To this day, many of the buildings have yet to be redeveloped. Today, the town is having a revival period. Many people have moved in to try to fix up the old dilapidated downtown district and fix up the boardwalk pavilions and open them back up. After Hurricane Sandy, Asbury Park was one of the first places on the Jersey Shore to reopen for the 2013 summer season. They opened on Memorial Day weekend and President Barack Obama, alongside Governor Chris Christie, held the official reopening ceremony in front of a crowd of 4,000 people. Along with fixing up the downtown district, many people have taken it upon themselves to buy out old Victorian homes and renovate them back to their former glory. Asbury Park has had quite a ride in its time, from nightlife to horrific disasters, from crowded tourist destinations to remnants of an old life slowly fading away. Asbury Park remains a famous and still nice place to visit. Asbury Park is on the Top 20 Beaches in New Jersey website. Now that you know the history, you will understand why there are so many ghost stories to be found in this beachside community. Not only are there plenty of ghost stories to tell about Asbury Park, but Asbury Park is home to New Jersey's first paranormal museum, named Paranormal Books and Curiosities and Paranormal Museum. This paranormal museum was established in 2008 and is a paranormal enthusiast's dream. The owner's name is Kathy Kelly, and she decided to open a bookstore that catered to paranormal research and witchcraft. She has books in the store stretching from parapsychology to cryptozoology, along with many historical 
historical research books and fun collectible magazines and the Weird U.S. series. They also offer ghost hunting classes, paranormal investigations, and lectures. They also offer tarot card readings, palm readings, seances, and ghost tours, such as the downtown tour, the boardwalk tour, or the haunted pub tour. I already know I want to visit. This place sounds like my kind of store. They even sell ghost hunting equipment downstairs. But be warned, this museum is also haunted by artifacts they have in the museum itself. The artifact-based exhibits feature haunts from the United States of America. They cover the Salem witch trials to the Civil War. They have haunted dolls that have been donated from people who can't stand them to be in their homes anymore. They also have what they call a Ouija wall. It is a wall full of Ouija boards that people have sent in because they had a bad experience with them while using them. They have one of the cell doors from the Ohio State Penitentiary where a fire killed 300 inmates in 1930. They also have what they call the singing couch. This couch seems to have brought a friendly woman entity with it that likes to sing for people who come with a recorder. They also have a section that they recommend that not everyone go due to the dark and oppressive feelings found within. The building also has a ghost that was there since the beginning, a little girl that likes to play with guests and staff and has been seen multiple times by staff and guests alike. This paranormal museum is located at 621 Cookman Avenue, if you are brave enough to go for a visit yourself. The house of Stephen Crane is reportedly haunted, and the activity has been around since Stephen Crane lived in the house in the late 1800s. Stephen Crane was a famous American author who wrote the novel The Red Badge of Courage. In 1894, he published an article titled Ghosts on the New Jersey Coast, where he talked about ghosts that linger around the boardwalks and the downtown alleyways. The house he lived in is one of the oldest homes in Asbury Park, being over 100 years old and is considered by many locals to be haunted. It might have inspired Crane to write the articles about the haunts that he found in Asbury Park. The home itself has had claims of disembodied voices and the sound of crying and laughing children can be heard throughout the home. The TV show Ghost Hunters was invited to the home for the show's sixth season. Footsteps and EVPs are common occurrence in this house. And the house even has an angry spirit that has been known to try to hit people over the head with fireplace tools. One theory that many ghost hunters and spiritualists believe in is water being a natural energy conductor for spirits to use to feed off of in order to manifest more easily. And what better body of water to have than the whole might of the Atlantic Ocean If you already knew this, then it would not surprise you that the beach and the boardwalks is home to many spirits. When Stephen Crane wrote Ghosts on the New Jersey Coast, he wrote of ghost sightings of two lovers that glided up and down the beach, an angry Revolutionary War British soldier who yells and tries to kill fishermen, and an elderly woman seen laughing before she slowly disappears. There are also an apparition of an African-American naval officer seen walking up and down the boardwalk. He never makes eye contact with anyone, but you can tell by his outdated uniform that he is from a time long ago. He eventually just disappears before people's eyes. The Asbury Lanes is a 100-year-old building that has gone through many changes. For a time, it was shut down, but the new owners have renovated and reopened the bowling alley in the 2000s, and now it is a hipster hangout type of vibe with the restaurant and a bar. But at night, after the patrons leave, is when the ghosts make themselves known. Bottles on the bar have been known to be tossed on the ground, bar stools move on their own, 
And the paranormal group from the Paranormal Books and Curiosities and Paranormal Museum has been to the lanes to investigate many times. They caught an EVP of a man saying, leave a shot on the bar. Now every night at closing, the bartender leaves a shot for the ghost. There is also an angry man who stalks the men's bathrooms. He has been known to slam stall doors and yell at people. Then there is the infamous Lane 3. The story is that three people have died of a heart attack while bowling at this lane. Whether that story is true or not, is, or if it's just an urban legend, one thing remains clear, that that lane does have something that wants to be known at the end of it. When workers are closing for the night, they have claimed to hear bowling pins being dropped and loud banging coming from behind the lane. There is also something unfriendly, and some might even say evil, hiding in the back storage room. People have been scratched, pushed, and had things thrown at them. Some people who have entered the storage room said they feel and such an oppressive feeling that they just have to leave the room immediately. Workers don't like going in that room alone. One of the most active spots seems to be the Paramount Theater and Convention Hall. Stories have been told of this location being haunted for years, but the theater was empty for about 10 years, and the new owners have reported an uptick in activity since acquiring it. So much, in fact, that they invited a ghost hunter show called Kindred Spirits to come and investigate for three nights. It was the first time that this location had been investigated by an experienced and well-known team. I know that some people might not like ghost hunting shows, but I decided to use this one uh, for the Paramount Theater because, number one, it just came out last Friday when I was doing this research anyways, so it ended up being perfect timing. And two, online I could not find as much great information as I got from their walkthrough in the very beginning of the show, so I am going to use uh, what they captured as evidence and stuff like that. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, Kindred Spirits has investigators Amy Burney and Adam Barry, and they're original members from TAPS, or the Ghost Hunters TV show. They also have uh, medium chip coffee on many of their episodes. During the show's investigation in the beginning, they got a tour from Jason Diermer, the technical director. He had lots of claims. Shadows are the main occurrence inside this space, especially on the second floor balcony of the theater. Mostly, he said that while standing on the stage, you can see shadows gliding fast from left to right. Lights malfunctioning is another strange occurrence. Sometimes they flash on and off, almost as if someone is trying to get your attention. Some of the staff have been in the building at night, and they can hear the sound as if the elevator is running on its own. People have noticed temperature changes throughout the building as well. He also spoke of a projectionist who passed away inside the projection booth, and now his ghost seems to hang out and look down upon the performers from the booth, although they never mentioned finding out if that was real or just an urban legend um, as to who might be hanging around the booth. The convention hall is also haunted. It has lots of shadow figures and apparitions of people moving down that rows. Electronical devices going on and off on their own, toilets flushing on their own, and strange sounds that you can't just explain away. Staff stories are just as creepy. One stage tech named Justin Cochran saw a shadow figure rise out of the stage floor, move up the wall, and go over the top of him as it went over the stage. He felt the temperature drop and watched as the shadow moved through an upper wall. About 30 seconds after he saw this, another employee came in and said he felt like he was pushed or grabbed because both incidences happened about the same time, they think they were connected. The same stage tech was taking a shower in one of the back dressing rooms when he heard little girls giggling and running up and down the hallway and banging noises coming from down the hall. 
When he went to check it out, he saw no one there, but he could still hear the sounds. Another witness to a paranormal event within the theater was Don McLean. He was in the first floor seating area, walking down one of the aisles towards the stage when he felt a burning on his arm. When he looked down, there were scratch marks and he felt like he got lightly pushed in the back. I couldn't figure out if this was the same time or a different time, but he also said that he has seen black shadow figures moving on the second floor balcony. The Kindred Spirits team did catch some interesting things while there. So I mentioned before that this space had not really been investigated a ton yet at this time and not to this extent. And I think it showed in this episode. It was like the ghost didn't know what to do with the crew. On the first night, Amy and Adam both saw shadow figures while looking up at the second floor balcony. And they heard a door slam or a gate creak as if it went out the door. But then it got really quiet. The next day, they did some research and decided to direct their investigation to the ship, the SS Morrow Castle. The ship, like I talked about in the history portion, beached itself right outside the theater. So there's a chance that the ghosts might be trapped on the beach, but they're moving from the beach up to the theater and back again, especially since the theater was used as a morgue. They brought in chip coffee to try to narrow it down just who they were talking to. There was a lot going on in this episode, and in the end, they were able to get some names on the spirit box equipment and some interactions from many different ghosts at once. They concluded that the theater is very much haunted, but they wanted to come back for another investigation because the ghosts were having a hard time getting through, and like I said before, they didn't quite know what to do with the questions that were being asked. They did get a shadow figure of some kind moving in the second floor balcony um, from left to right, so that was really cool, so that kind of backed up the claims from before. In the end, Asbury Park has had so many things happen in the area with its ups and downs that I would love to do a ghost tour and even an investigation for myself. that you all enjoyed this episode of Historically Haunted. Please rate and review this episode on iTunes. It helps people find my show easier. And also add me on Facebook at Historically Haunted and check out my website at historicallyhaunted.net. Stay healthy, everyone. We will get through this together. See you next time. Thank you.